Now when they, that is Joseph and Mary, had departed, behold, and I, not, no, not really. When the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and, there, and was there until the death of Herod that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee. And he came and resided in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. This is the first day of the rest of your life. That is a well-worn, perhaps overused statement, almost a cliché. I mean, that's been thrown around so much that it has very little impact on us when we hear somebody say, this is the first day of the rest of your life. But it might have a little bit greater impact if you listened to that statement or saw that statement in the perspective of a new year. And if you could imagine that all of what has gone on in the past that has hindered or hurt you is erased, and this is the new beginning the first day of the rest of your life, it might have a little bit greater impact. In her book, Celebrate Joy, a lady by the name of Velma Daniels tells about interviewing a man who visited with the Eskimos who lived above the Arctic Circle. The man told her, he said, don't ever ask an Eskimo how old he is because his answer will be, I don't know and I don't care. One day he said, I decided that that wasn't going to be good enough for me, so I asked one his age. He said, I don't know and I don't care. Oh, he said, now come on. He said, what is your age? And said, the Eskimo thought a moment and he said, almost, just almost. And he said, that still wasn't enough, so I pursued. Almost what, I asked. And the Eskimo said, almost a day. And he said, I didn't really understand what he meant fully until I talked to somebody who knew something about the philosophy and life among those people. And he said, he explained to me this way. He said, an Eskimo believes that when he goes to sleep at night, he dies. He's literally dead to the world. And when he wakes the next morning, he's resurrected to a new life. So he had almost lived a day. Writes the man... Life above the Arctic Circle is harsh and cruel, and survival is, is a difficult thing. But you never see an Eskimo worried or anxious because he has learned to face life a day at a time. This is the first day 
of the rest of your life. The people of this text lived in harsh and cruel days. Survival was difficult. It was a difficult time. The Christmas story is over. The stars have stopped blinking in the heavens. The shepherds have gone back to their flocks. The wise men have returned to the east. And now life gets down to the nitty-gritty. And God comes to Joseph and, and tells him in a dream that Herod wants your child in order to kill him. Now you get up and you escape to Egypt and you stay there until I tell you to leave. It's difficult for us to understand the pathos of this experience, this event. When these two people, gathering a little bit of their belongings together and their beloved son, and in, a, in the darkness of night, silently and soberly making their way toward Egypt, with no prospect of job, no possessions, no place to stay, going down to Egypt like refugees. Life is like that. Even in the best of circumstances, even here in this most glorious story of all of literature, of angels and births of babies and mangers, even there the specter of death hangs heavy. Now there are two or three truths that I want you to derive from this text and from that statement. This is the first day of the rest of your life. First truth is this. There is much in tomorrow to fear, to dread. There is much in life to dread. Now the Bible never does gloss over the fact, the real, that there are problems in living this incomplete and imperfect world. The Bible never glosses, glosses over the fact that there is much to dread in tomorrow nor will I. And the Bible never tries to paint a Pollyanna view of life that everything is good and everything is rosy, nor will I. Sometimes life is cruel and demanding and difficult. Occasionally I watch, when I'm watching television, or I hear somebody else preach, which is very seldom... Sometimes, not all the time, I get the impression that some people want us to believe that the people of God never have problems. That life for God's people is a bed of roses. There's not one pain, not one trial, not one heartache, not one problem. And I just sometimes kind of smile as I listen to that and, the, and hear the implication. And I want to say, tell us the rest of the story. Tell us the reality of God's people. That there was slavery and tears and tribulation and famine and wilderness wanderings and help us to see that life for all of us is difficult under the best circumstances and that the reality is that tomorrow brings some things to dread. Tomorrow brings some things to fear. And the same Jesus who said... Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, is the same Jesus who said these words in Matthew 24. I want you to turn to that chapter, Matthew 24. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 7. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. 
and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. He said, you haven't seen anything yet. This is just the start. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things that are in the house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak, but woe to those who are with child and those, and to those who nurse babes in those days, and on and on and on. The reality is, life brings things to dread. Second truth. It is so easy for us to be overcome or overwhelmed by our fears. Many of us become overwhelmed by fear. I read somewhere of a group of people who were trapped in a, in a cold storage vault, assuming that there was no air to breathe, assuming that the temperature would freeze them. They all sat down. Most of them died. The reality was there was plenty of air to breathe, and the temperature was not such to freeze them. What killed them? Their fears. The most basic of all human emotions is fear. And fear in proper doses is healthy. But many people are almost totally dominated by their fears. It may be fear of failure, it may be fear of places, or fear of rejection, or fear of people. There are as many fears as there are demands upon the human nature. For anything we are asked to do or to be can create fear. Now there are some people who love to take risks. They're just risk takers. A few years ago a man by the name of Frank Finley, a psychologist at the University of Wisconsin, studied risk-taking personalities. And he developed what he called the T-factor. The T-factor, he said, was present in those people who love to take risk, either positive or negative risk. Now, positive risk is, is where people are willing to risk their life for the benefit of others, and negative risk-takers of those who are, to, who are willing to take a risk to the detriment of society, like thieves and criminals, you know. I'm going to take a chance on this, see if I can't make a buck. And he pointed out how, how amazing it is, what amazing things people will do who have the T-factor. Last year, 150,000 people shot the rapids in Colorado, the Colorado River because they love to take a risk. Since 1970, 45,000 people have taken up hang gliding. You know what that is, don't you? You put on some gossamer, wing, gossamer wings and go out and jump off a, a cliff, you know, hoping to get a little air, you know underneath you. 4,000 people a week enter the stock market, new people. 
I was reading not long ago about a group of school teachers in Denver, Colorado, who paid stockbrokers to come in at the lunch hour of these school teachers and help them understand how to, how to risk the stock market in penny stock, you know, where you can triple your investment or lose it overnight. How about the state lottery, you know, risk a little, win a lot? $21 million pot in, in, in New York, and even Governor Cuomo stood for 30 minutes in line to get $5 worth of chances on the lottery. And those people are three and a half times more likely to be struck by lightning than to win the lottery. They're just folks who are willing to take a risk. But most of us are fearful of risking anything. We're scared to death. Reinhold Niebuhr tells about the man who left his home in Kansas and joined the Navy, and the first assignment was to climb up this high mast of the ship. He got halfway up and was terrified and just froze there. He couldn't go up any higher because he was afraid of the height. He couldn't come down because he was afraid of the ridicule of his, of his sailor friends, so he just kind of froze in the middle. Most of us are just like that, dominated by our fears. John Madden's afraid to fly, so he travels around the country doing these sports broadcasts in this huge bus. Judy Garland was afraid to go out on stage, believe it or not, and was afraid of entering a, a store where there were people. Albert Camus, the French existentialist, was afraid to drive a car. He was killed in an automobile accident. His friend was driving. Sigmund Freud was afraid to travel. Mamie Eisenhower got people to take her everywhere on this go out of her way, to, go out of their way to find routes where they didn't have to cross a bridge. And J. Edgar Hoover was afraid of, of the left side, believe it or not. Now, are people weird or what? And so the people who drove J. Edgar Hoover from place to place did, went through this complicated arrangement so there'd be no left turns. We make our life miserable because we're paralyzed by our fears. And there is only one antidote to fear, and that is faith. I'm alone. I may be alone. I may feel alone, but I know that God is with me. I may see no hope for the future, but I believe in the source of hope. Although I'm not able to discern the hand of God at this particular moment, I believe that God is at work in my life. And so as this Christmas drama unfolded, and as they made their way to Joseph's birthplace to register, there must have been this confidence in the back of their mind that God has been moving a Roman emperor in order to fulfill an isolated little scripture in Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And God is in this, even using the jealous rage of Herod and Archelaus to fulfill his purpose when he said, My son will be called out of Egypt. So that even though life was harsh and hard for Mary and Joseph, and it was difficult for them to see the hand of God by faith, they moved on. There is a third truth in this story. This passage, and it's this, that you and I can expect the best and should expect the best. Now, when you read this account of Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt, it's not just that they're fleeing from Herod 
They are racing toward the great plan of God that every Jew believed. They're not just running from danger. They're running to God's plan for the ages. For consider their recent history, what these people had come through. An angel comes, tells Mary she's going to have a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's a star that moves across the sky and just settles down over Bethlehem. There are these shepherds who some, one suddenly appear one day and say that God told them about the birth of the Savior. There's these, there are these wise men who've traveled bringing gifts. There's Simeon who says, in the face of your son, I have seen the hopes and fears of all the years. They're not running from Herod as much as they're running to the plan of God. There's such an atmosphere of despair in our world. And we look with shuddering dread at the future. H.G. Wells once said that man who began in a cave behind a windbreak will end in the diseased, soaked ruins of a slum. And Sir Philip Gibbs says that the thinking man will one day be exterminated by poisonous gas. I guess he must have known something about Saddam Hussein. And he said, quote, if I smell poisonous gas in the high street of Kensington, I'm not going to go put on a gas mask. I'm going out and breathe deeply of it because I will know that the game is up. There are some folks who feel that for humanity, the game is up. But you can't think like that and believe in God. If God is the God we believe Him to be, there is no room for pessimism. If God is the God we believe Him to be, there is no place for despair. There may be remorse and there may be regret, and who does not have regret? And there may be penitive contrition and there may be heart-seeking, the realization of failure and sin, but there can never be despair. For the God you and I believe is a God who works miracles. And what you and I do as we face the rest of our life is to expect the best. What you, there is such a poverty of a sense of the miraculous and a sense of the expectation when we come to church. What do you expect to happen when you come to church. One guy was asked that. He said, I expect to be out by 12. That's just about, about it. I don't expect a great service. I don't expect a miracle. I expect to be gone from here by 12. God is a source of miracles so that when we come to this holy place believing that He can touch your life and make you a new person, Jesus said, you believe and you'll see the glory of God. The first day of the rest of your life, expect the best and work for it. Ryan Harbor, I know Brother Cox here knows him, and he was his pastor for a while. He has a great book entitled Rising Above the Heights. He gives five or six things I want you to jot down. Got a pencil? 
when achieving the best and, 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 and reaching for the heights, five or six things. Number one, it's never too late. It's never too early to begin. The first day of the rest of your life, it's not too late to begin to achieve greatness. Gertie was 80 when he completed Faust. Tennyson was 83 when he wrote Crossing the Bar. Michelangelo was 87 when he completed his greatest work of art. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes set down some brilliant legal opinions at the age of 90. Albert Schweitzer was still head of his hospital in Africa at 89. Conrad Adenauer, Adenauer was Chancellor of Germany when he was 88. And Winston Churchill wrote four volumes entitled The History of the English-Speaking People at the Age of 82. It's never too late, never too early to start. Second, reaching the goals of greatness will never come easy. An appliance salesman paused at the door to tell this young lady one day, if you buy my product, it'll cut your work, housework, in half. She said, I'll take two of them. <laughs> There's no shortcuts. It never comes easy. Number three, evaluate yourself and determine the gifts, your gifts, your potential, your desire. There's some things in reality you can't do. You evaluate your, and determine your gifts, your potential, your desire. Number four, decide the long-range goal of your life. That is, your purpose for living. If you decide your purpose for living, and your purpose for living is to glorify God, then determine the daily and weekly goals that will enable you to reach that. Number five, set goals which will motivate you to progress in every area of your life, socially, spiritually, physically, financially, personally, and in your family life. And six, Establish times when you will measure your progress. See how you're doing. A few years ago, the state championship of basketball in Class 5A was held in the Myriad in Oklahoma City. And two of the greatest teams in, bas in, the, in, in basketball, prep basketball in Oklahoma, tipped off to play the game in Oklahoma City. They had worked their way and won their way to that championship game when they tipped off. The ball went to a six-foot-six player for the, one of the teams. He went down to the other end of the court, and there were no goals. They played the entire game without a goal. Can you imagine that? Of course that didn't happen. You can't play a game without goals. For how would you determine who won? And how would you evaluate how you did? And how would you determine the success? How are you going to do that in your life if you don't set goals? To become the best you can be. 
the best husband, the best father, physically healthy, socially related to others. I'm going to expect the best, and this is how I'm going to do it. And so Max Licardo puts it like this. I'll read this and I'm out of here. Today I will make a difference. I will begin by controlling my thoughts. A person is the product of his thoughts. I want to be happy and hopeful. Therefore, I will have thoughts that are happy and hopeful. I refuse to be victimized by my circumstances. I will not let petty inconveniences such as stoplights, long lines, traffic jams be my master. I will avoid negativism and gossip. Optimism will be my companion and victory will be my hallmark. Today I will make a difference. I will be grateful for the 24 hours that are before me. Time is a precious commodity. I refuse to allow what little time I have to be contaminated by self-pity, anxiety, or boredom. I will face this day with the joy of a, ch of, of a child and the courage of a giant. I will drink each moment as though it is my last. When tomorrow comes, today will be gone forever while it is here. I will use it for loving and giving. Today, I will make a difference. I will not let past failures haunt me. Even though my life is scarred with mistakes, I refuse to rummage through my trash heap of failures. I will admit them. I will correct them. I will press on victoriously. No failure is fatal. It's okay to stumble. I'll get up. It's okay to fall. I'll rise again. Today, I'll make a difference. I'll spend time with those I love, my spouse, my children, my family. A man can own the world but be poor for the lack of love. A man can own nothing and yet be wealthy in relationships. Today I will spend at least five minutes with the most significant people in my world. Five quality minutes. Five minutes of talking or hugging or thanking or listening. Five undiluted minutes with my mate, children, and friends. Today, I will make a difference. This is the first day of the rest of my life. I want you to bow your head. We'll not have an invitation. I just want you to spend some moments in your prayer, in your heart, dealing with your own commitment to God. Father, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing toward those things which are before, we stretch toward the prize of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus. Through Jesus Christ who gives strength and enables, through Christ who lives in us and desires to live through us, we commit this day and the rest of our life. Amen.